Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing paediatric sepsis. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. And in this episode, we'll be discussing paediatric sepsis. So we have uh, Dr. Rachel Tricks with us. Hello, Rachel. Hi. Uh, you're ST7 in paediatric emergency medicine. Yes, that's right. Uh, making your pod debut. Welcome. I am, today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to discuss, I think, a subject that sounds scary and I think can, can terrify clinicians, uh, both new and old, to uh, paediatrics, uh, paediatric sepsis. Um, but we're going to start off with some definitions and then we're going to go through a very systematic approach. Is that right? Okay, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's, about, that's about it today. Um, so um, obviously sepsis is the same in adults or children. So um, there has to be presence of an infection. Um, and then still in children, we do still sort of discuss about the SERS criteria. So infection plus either abnormal temperature, um, abnormal heart rate, uh, raised respiratory rate um, and obviously an abnormal white cell count although that's difficult to tell when your child's first presenting in A&E is yeah, they don't have it written <laughs> on their foreheads. <laughs> um, we talk about severe sepsis being sepsis in the presence of cardiovascular dysfunction, um, acute respiratory distress or dysfunction of more than two organ systems um, and then with that we also have septic shock so that's sepsis with cardiovascular dysfunction um, which persists despite having 40 mils per kilo lower fluid in the first hour um, and then refractory septic shock being requiring more than 60 mils per kilo of fluid and then they go on to sort of describe catecholamine oh, <laughs> resistant shock um, so that shock which is resistant to early inotrope use um, when um, the child presents to us um, we also have to be aware that there can be two forms of shock um, although the more common one, particularly in the ED, is cold shock. Mm. Um, so these are your children who have um, the increased systemic vascular resistance. So they've got reduced cardiac output, they look cold peripherally, they've got delayed capillary refill, mm. reduced pulses, mm. um, often mottled and dry. But some children will present in warm shock as well, although these tend to be more in hospital. Mm. Um, so they have um, decreased... Um, systemic vascular resistance, elevated cardiac output, and um, often a flash capillary refill, so they look quite red, flushed, okay. and hot. But these tend to be more in hospital patients. So the cold shock is that your pale, floppy child. Your the pale, one floppy that child. The, the, the crew are running in with crew holding. In. Yeah, yeah. You, you undress them and go, oh no, <laughs> yeah. they're purple. Um, yeah. This doesn't look good. Yeah. Okay. So that's more what we're sort of going to be discussing today. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so if you've so you've got a, a, an unwell child coming in and, and you're thinking of paediatric um, sepsis, is there is there anything in the history that you're going to want to know? I mean, it's, it's a time critical presentation. So you're you're being brought in. The parents are there. What are you going to want to know as, as quickly as possible? Um, so how long they've been unwell. Um, so the easy things to look out for are what is their activity level like? Are, are they sick? Are they running around? Um, are they completely lethargic and floppy? Um, are these children eating and drinking? Um, are they having wet nappies? Because obviously that gives you a really good idea of perfusion in a child. So a child who's not had a wet nappy for 10, 12 hours is probably quite sick. Um, 
and from then you can go on to assess them and see how they're going. Um, another key important fact is rash, um, mm. so we all know that non-blanching rashes are pretty scary um, and can be signs of meningococcal sepsis and other forms of sepsis, so we need to make sure that if the parent says, ask for that, and if they've got says one, have a look at it and check what their rash is like. Okay, okay. Um, and so you, you've still got that quick information on the go and um, we're going to start to get some observations on, our, on the patient as well. Yeah. So, so what sort of red flags are going through your head then? Um, so the main red flags for assessing a child with sepsis are a child with an elevated heart rate um, or elevated respiratory rate, a child with um, a low blood pressure. Um, any child who looks pale, mottled, blue, obviously, and um, the non-blanching rash. And the one thing I would say is undress these kids as far as you can, possibly. Um, I've found non-blanching rashes is the first sign of a kid with severe sepsis under their socks. So really don't wow. forget to strip them off completely because okay. you may well miss the very early signs of something. Mm. Um, Looking at their alert and activity, so are they sitting up in bed, are they interacting with you, are they smiling, are they actually wanting to get up and play, because obviously that's a really reassuring sign, but mm. your child is floppy in bed, that's something, that's a definite red flag. Um, and then you can go on to do further assessments such as blood pressure and um, blood tests as you need to, and they will help you. I suppose a vaccination history as well is useful. Vaccination history is very useful, um, although at the end of the day um, children still get sepsis and they children do. with full immunisation schedules um, often do get group A sepsis and um, our, even our vaccinations only cover certain um, strands. Yeah. So those are our sort of our absolute red flags yeah. and, and um, good advice as well about making sure that you strip the patient down properly. What about some things that are concerning but not so much a red flag where you're mm. going to be wanting to get some quick senior reviews but probably not the red flags yet? Um, so I mentioned heart rate and respiratory rate um, and also with that you've got to consider oxygen requirement. Um, as being red flags and technically these are our red flags but for those of us who work in paediatrics frequently you'll know that a lot of our children come in with high heart rates because they're anxious because of the situation um, they um, may be hot and we know that just be having a temperature for whatever reason will put up their heart rate and respiratory rate um, uh, or they may be wheezy struggling to breathe and that will also put up their respiratory rate and um, potentially um, give them a need for oxygen uh, and yet at the same time we can sit there and we can say actually this child isn't septic. So certainly that although they are listed as red flags, things like oxygen requirement, respiratory rate, heart rate, it's worth looking at the child, um, assessing them in their clinical picture, um, talking with mum and dad and any concerns about these then just ask a senior for advice and most people, um, if you've got senior registrars, senior consultants, will be happy to sort of say, yeah, no, actually, I'm happy that that child's only wheezy or that they don't need it early intervention. But it also backs you up then if they do need intervention, mm. that, that you've got someone there looking at the child soon. Absolutely. Um, so if you've got a child who, who has red flags, you're, you're concerned then that they, they are a septic child, what's, what are you going to be doing for that child in, in A&E? Um, so these... These children need um, early intervention, so you've picked up on the red flags. Um, the first thing that they need, you need to get is access and a bit more information about um, their current status, so a blood gas is really useful for that. Um, 
we talk about getting early access and sort of only having one or two attempts at IV access because they're often quite shut down and it's quite difficult. It's hard enough to cannulate children at the best of times, let alone when their veins are collapsing um, and they've got a very low circulating blood pressure. Um, so we say give have two attempts, but really think about early IO access um, as an option. Um, and then to try and get as many investigations as possible um, in that early time. So um, getting good volumes of blood in their blood cultures because we need early identification of the pathogen. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't get it, then that makes it really difficult because how long are you going to treat this child for if you yeah. don't know? Um, a negative blood culture doesn't necessarily mean that they were never had an infection. Absolutely not, yeah. um, Other things to consider early in, um, we sort of, um, I know you've sort of previously discussed um, the collapse neonate, but things about thinking about things like LPs and urine samples mm. and getting those really early as well um, can help with the length of antibiotics. Um, I know that um, there's been some recent studies published um, in the archives only of disease in childhood only in December talking about um, LP use in meningitis and showing that actually those children who had their antibiotics pre-LP often ended up staying in hospital a lot longer because they didn't have a pathogen to say how long the antibiotic course uh. needed to be given. So it's certainly something that's worth thinking about um, if you've got the skill and the time to do that mm. and you're happy that your child is stable enough for you to do an LP. Mm. Um, the other thing is urines and again we often far too often set parents up with a pot and say, oh, just catch an urine when you can. But um, if the child is shut, shut down, down, they're not going to yeah. be producing much urine. Um, and by the time you've given those antibiotics and they pass that urine, often it could be sterile anyway, and that could have been your source. So thinking about um, superpubic aspirates, if you're happy to do that, or even just um, catheter insertions, um, you get an early urine um, and then you can use that to monitor their yeah. fluid output anyway. So mm -hmm. all things to think about early on. Um, getting that blood gas is probably really critical. Um, it gives you a really good idea of where the child is at. Um, the lactate, we're and yeah. With the, yeah, of the lactate is the primary thing that we want to know on it because that really guides our fluid management over the next hour or so and how fast we have to give those fluids. Mm -hmm. um, we, the cutoff point, um, as probably is for adults, although I'm not, <laughs> I haven't done adults <laughs> in a long time, um, is four. So anyone yeah. with a lactate over four um, definitely Absolutely. needs fluids. Two to yeah. four, you can start to think about it. Yeah. Um, and under two, if they're unstable, I would still be giving fluids. Yeah. But certainly if it's over four, you probably want to be talking to your PICU and intensive care teams yeah. ASAP <laughs> so that they can be aware at least if yeah. not coming down to We've see you straight away as with gas also gives you glucose doesn't yes. it as well which is useful yeah so um glucose is obviously variable sometimes it can be high because they're stressed but more often than not these children haven't been eating um they've got quite low reserves so um it's also something to be aware of and treat as mm. you need straight away because um, the complications of hypoglycemia <laughs> can completely um mess up your treatment as well um <laughs> And so yeah, and in, in adults in particular, we're going against it with antimicrobial stewardship, but there is this idea of let's TAS for everybody, mm. TAS us in, TAS us in. Is it much the same in, in, in paediatrics? Um, or so we're not, trying to be more specific? We're not using TAS in, we're tending to use keftriaxone as our first line. Um, 
antibiotic if the child is quite young um, so as the, as the neonate then we need to think about the other causes um, possible um, pathogens which are introduced at birth so um, we include amoxicillin and gentamicin um, in those age groups um, there's also more talk now to include uh, at least a stat dose of gentamicin in our older age groups if we think they're shocked just to give better cover um, and generally keftriaxone is our mainstay obviously if they're severely immunosuppressed um, we know that they're on chemotherapy or whatever reason then we can use more targeted antibiotics such as tazacin cool. um, but we don't tend to use those as a first line <laughs> <laughs> some, at least some patients that don't get taz uh brilliant okay um so that's our that's our, our approach that we're, we're taking with our patient and and as you've said you already then you're looking at that response that the patient's going to have as to where they're going to end up are we going to need it you know piku to come down and, and to review our patient as well just to sort of reiterate the the PICU thing, you know, obviously I think people, especially start in paediatrics, or oh, I don't want to bother the seniors, I'm a bit scared and we can sometimes be a bit worried about crying wolf or whatever, but obviously this is sepsis, if we're concerned we need to be concerned, so what sort of things do we need to think about to go, this patient's going to need to go up to PICU? So, um, the f Obviously the first thing is if you've got a child who you think is septic is getting the most senior person in your department to see this child straight away. Um, they sort of, so any child who um, is scoring a red flag for sepsis should be reviewed by a registrar within half an hour and a consultant within 60 minutes. Um, and while you're getting all this, starting all the treatment as well. Um, early PICU involvement is really important because um, we don't do a lot of management of the sort of intubation central lines, things like this down in the department and actually um, we do need their support for this. Um, depending on who you've got um, available in terms of anaesthetists and extra support, they may or may not be happy to support you with this. Um, if you're in a DGH you may find yourself in a very different situation um, and actually speaking to the PICUs early, speaking to your local transport service um, can at least make them aware mm. so that they've got you on the radar so if they need to come and pick you up, pick the child up, give you extra support then they, yeah. they know. Um, so I would always say even if you just want some reassurance that you're doing <laughs> the right thing, um, give PICU a call if you've got a child um, who's looking pretty sick and yeah. needing a lot of fluids. Something less about. Um, so shall we reiterate those things about the fluids as well? What was the cutoff you were talking about for being fluid um, refractory? Um, so uh, child um, who's got a lactate of more than four um, definitely needs um, at least 10 to 20 mils per kilo straight off um, and if you get a little bit of response and definitely consider repeating it straight away but once you've got 40 mils per kilo these kids really need to be on iron tropes and again that's why you need your PICU there. Mm -hmm. um, I know certainly in many departments um, the a &E paediatric nurses as great as they are don't have much experience managing inotropes no. um, and actually even if it's not a doctor you want there straight away because you can manage that bit you might want a PICU nurse mm. um, someone to come down help draw up and make up the drugs um, whilst everyone is getting into position yeah. um, if they've got a lactate of two to four certainly start giving them fluids again 10 to 20 mils per kilo um, and um, then and reassess and 
check check another blood gas after their bolus, see how they're doing. Um, these, these children may or may not end up on PICU, but um, still they need early fluids as any child does. And for those with a lactate below two, um, hopefully it's just their tachycardia is possibly down to something else and really it's a matter of looking at them in the entire yeah. uh, clinical context and speaking with your senior again <laughs> yeah absolutely well, it's difficult isn't it you know as you said there's a psychological aspect they're a little kid that's they're, they're yeah. scared um, have they been given you know something that you know that's made them more tachycardic you know anything like that and you know, i think um, it's important to think about it brilliant um and you mentioned inotropes that's really for anybody who isn't aware listening that's your, your vasopressors you're trying to help out by increasing their vascular resistance to increase their blood pressure essentially aren't we they're not doing it themselves no no <laughs> not not anymore um i think one of the other things is this quite a lot of debate about how uh, much fluid we should be giving yeah. um, and as we had in the paediatric DKA podcast yeah, with, with, <laughs> with Colin a few yeah the other year um, <laughs> so should it be 10 or 20 mils per kilo um, there's been previous studies which were done um, in low resource settings um, so that was the feast study uh, a few years ago which showed that those kids who were getting um, big boluses actually had higher mortalities than those kids who weren't getting boluses um, so that's raised some questions obviously it's a completely different setting we've got a different patient group malnutrition is a big problem in that patient group yeah um, but um, it is something that they're starting to look at over here and there's been sort of feasibility studies done for the fish study mm. anyone may have heard of that but they're starting to look at whether okay. we can start to address how much fluid we're giving don't want to kill with children. kindness not really no. <laughs> <laughs> and so shall we just have a bit of a chat about special circumstances then yeah so there's a certain group of patients who may turn up in the department um, who may look okay but are at higher risk of getting sepsis so um, these are children who are immunosuppressed for whatever reason and some of them have a nice big label on them saying I have this disease it makes me immunosuppressed um, but there's other groups of patients we see quite frequently so our children who have Down syndrome trisomy 21 um, that automatically puts them at risk of immunosuppression and um, you've probably heard in the news um, there's been a few unfortunate deaths of children with Down Absolutely. syndrome um, in other centres but also locally as well um, because they just don't have the reserves to fight the infection um, and there's been uh, moves recently to sort of improve that recognition and improve people's knowledge of that um, yeah. So one of the new policies that we put in place here in Nottingham is that any child who presents unwell with Down syndrome, um, sorry, who has Down syndrome, yeah. um, who presents unwell, yeah. who presents unwell, um, then they um, they really do need an early senior review. Even if you think it's just a cold or a virus, okay. for whatever reason, they they need to be seen by either someone in the emergency department who is a paediatrician. So there's a few of cons us consultants who are paediatricians by background, um, or have done a lot of paediatric emergency medicine in their time. Yeah. Or one of the more senior registrars who is also a paediatrician. Sure. Um, so someone who's doing paediatric emergency medicine uh, rather than just the ST4 A&E registrars who are great as they are, but this new, the new policy, extra level. The, the new policy is that they should be reviewed by someone. Sure. If that personnel isn't available, then they should be being admitted to paediatrics for that review. 
um, and that's going to be a blanket policy across the trust. So, is this because they, they deteriorate because very quickly? Because they deteriorate very quickly, and they okay. may show signs and hide signs that um, yeah. are more clear cool. in other people. So again, so I suppose that's not so much a red flag, but again, something to be concerned about if you hear that history or if you hear from the mum or dad going, yeah, the last time they were like this, they then ended up, you know, we were sent home and then the yeah. next day we were in really poorly. Yeah. And, yeah, again, this. and a lot of that is not just the child at the time, but it's all what the parents are feeling as well. Mm. So um, even if you're sending, you've got a child in front of you who looks really well, if they have a history, they've lost previous siblings due to sepsis or this child has had previous sepsis in the past, yeah. they're gonna, you've got to remember they're are. gonna be yeah. really anxious. And so sometimes actually not dismissing their fears and just even if you're not worried, bringing them in, speaking to your seniors, getting someone else to come and have a look at them just to reassure the parents because they're, um, obviously really anxious and worried. Of course, of course, absolutely. Um, so you just to, as we start to wrap up, you wanted to talk about a Delphi study which was done locally so um, about reassuring and not so reassuring features. Yeah, so um, there was a Delphi study actually run by two of the ED clinicians in Sheffield, but um, they managed to get 195 clinicians um, worldwide, mainly from the US and UK, um, and they actually put it to them like, what are the reassuring findings? How, how do you make that decision when you're a senior decision maker that these children now are actually well enough to go home? Um, we should just mention how a Delphi study is done. So this is where you're trying to get a bit of a consensus amongst experts. And so you send off you know, a question, you get their ideas, you come up with a consensus out of it, you send that out <laughs> and you see, oh yes, I agree with this, yeah. no I don't, and eventually you're trying to, through the wisdom of these experts, come up with a, this is our agreement. Yeah. So this is what they did so worldwide. In, yeah, so in their process they sort of came up with 13 statements that they put out worldwide, um, sort of looking at all the common things that they might think about, so it goes from activity levels, child eating, drinking, playing, um, talking, um, are they miserable, consolable, um, are they using a phone, that's often coming up quite frequently now, or are they quite interested in watching YouTube on mum and dad's phone, um, and also finally is fear of a clinician, which is always a good one, but unfortunately I think most children are scared of us. Um, I was terrified when I was a kid, <laughs> absolutely terrified, the irony now, but yeah, absolutely terrified when I was a kid. Oh, I love going to the doctor, I oh, spent I my life in A&E. Oh no, I hated it, absolutely hated it, never mind. Um, so yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> I got you the fever. I was absolutely a horror. Oh, wow. Blood test. I was a, no dreadful. You were poorly. Um, I just broke my arm all the time. So oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are the what what did the uh, what did the study find out were reassuring features? So then? their main reassuring features were um, are these children active and energetic? So your child who's running around the playroom, just wanting to play all the time. Um, they were quite happy that sort of. 98% found that very or moderately reassuring of their cohorts. So if you have got a child and their heart rate's high because they're running around, then I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, they were also quite reassured, um, certainly by children. So a child who's eating, um, they sort of were hitting 67, 70% um, reassured people found that very or moderately reassuring. Um, drinking was less so, um, mm. so to be aware of that and obviously appetite levels do increase um, with how well you're feeling. Um, 
again smiling laughing interaction between the child and you um, particularly in your young non-mobile children um, if they're sitting at you smiling making bubbles then um, they're generally very well and they've again they've put playing as being over 90 percent um, and um, smiling and laughing being over 90 percent sort of very or moderately reassuring um, there were some findings which they felt there was more of a consensus that they weren't reassuring um, and those in particular were how consolable the child was in okay. their mum's arms so um, we talk a lot about the irritable child and you sort mm. of say oh well the irritable child is a child who can't be consoled but I think um, some, ch some children will feel much happier in mum's arms but that doesn't mean that they're not sick um, and finally f again yeah fear of clinicians apparently that's not a very reassuring <laughs> sign at all so um, Yes. As in, <laughs> as in the will. more scared they are of the clinician, the more poorly they are. Yeah. Wow, okay. Well, potentially. Um, I think it's just not a very um, reassuring sign that they're well or poorly. So. Fair there you go. God. I'd be admitted all the time when I was a kid. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, excellent. Uh, right, so I think that's a very sort of practical approach to, to uh, the child with sepsis. As you already mentioned, we, we have done a... Um, an episode already on the collapse neonate we've got three episodes with phil and colin on the wheezy child trilogy so there's that <laughs> as well to have a listen to um i know we're going to do some on non-blanching rash, rash yep. and the, the child with fever as well so i haven't put you off already no. <laughs> um so then i suppose the, the, just to to finally finish uh if we are discharging our child obviously like you said parents are very worried they hear the word sepsis it's all over the media and so they're obviously very scared and, and they may obviously have had first-hand mm. experience of it as well um safety netting is very very important it's very important here in a and e we're under increasing pressure to make sure that we are providing people with the correct information yeah um so what sort of safety netting do we need to put in place when we go, we don't think your child is septic, but what, what do we need to put in? Um, safety, safety netting is really hard because you're saying, I, I don't think your child is unwell, but your child might get unwell. And then parents are thinking, are you actually doing your job here? Or, this is it, this is it. <laughs> yeah, no. So um, I, it's just making a really clear set of instructions. I think a lot of it is saying at this moment, your child isn't, isn't unwell if they came into hospital there is nothing that we would be doing other than observing your child which is what you can do at home mm. um, and parents are really good at looking after their children they keep a close eye on them um, so making sure if you're going to be safe safety netting and discharging the child um, making sure that actually you're sending the child home with parents who have an ability to get back into hospital quite easily so if the child does deteriorate make sure that they're not 60 miles away um, out in rural Lincolnshire if we were here um, I've worked in some other very rural settings and actually making sure that they can get back to hospital um, and then giving them a list of sort of signs and symptoms to look out for so particularly activity levels we've said that's quite a key symptom so if they're lethargic they're not waking up properly then that's definitely when we want to see them back um, non-blanching rashes or mottled um, again definitely want to see them back um, any um, Oh, it's just dropped out of my head. <laughs> uh, reduced urine output so they're not drinking they're not interested in their feeds um, then again 
um, want to see them back, vomiting, diarrhea, anything really which they're not happy with, which is a change in the child's um, from where they are now, um, and make them feel really comfortable to come back because some people sort of feel, oh, I've been to see the doctor once, I don't want to go back again now, they've said everything was okay, we'll just sit out. But no, really make sure that they feel comfortable, that they're worried, um, then they can happily come back and see us again. Marvellous. Brilliant. There will be a new leaflet as well here in Nottingham, and I'm sure if you were working elsewhere, um, they may already have one. So use that because then it gives them something written to take away. We've been doubt in practice. Look at the leaflet. Basically, um, I was <laughs> NHS websites. There's always something you can print yeah. off and give them. And if you're in an exam, there's always a leaflet you can mine. Yes. Uh, and if you're in an OSCE station, give a leaflet. Just even if it's the most ridiculous thing ever, that was the best advice I ever heard for Oskies. Just here's a leaflet. There we go. Marvellous. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank, Thank you. That was the Take Orally Pediatric Sepsis podcast. You can find the blog entry for this podcast at takeorally.com. Remember, you can find Take Orally on both SoundCloud, Apple's podcasts, uh, Spotify, and Instagram. You can follow us on both Twitter and Facebook. For more information about research and education opportunities in the most medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, remember to check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.